In her essay on what are called love tokens, Jenny Hurl Amon writes about the collections of the London Foundling Hospital. Its museum houses hundreds of items that were left by 18th century parents and carefully cataloged by hospital authorities to ensure that, should circumstances change, parents could retrieve their children. Tanya Evans' study of the collection stressed women's participation as donors of these objects and their significance of maternal love. Objects such as buttons, beads, coins of low denomination, even objects as crude as pips of fruit, signified mothers' relationships with their infants and represented the only tangible link they had to their child. That was at the London Foundling Hospital in the 18th century. In her novel, The Foundling, set in America in the early 20th century, Anne Leary opens with a love token of sorts. I've been told that my mother had a wonderful sense of humor, also that she was pretty. Most people recall her wit first and her easy laughter, and because of this I've always had a better sense of how she felt than how she looked. She must have been happy most of the time if she found so many funny things to say and to laugh about. She died when I was an infant, so I have no memory of her. After I moved to my Aunt Kate's house, I'd hear her talking with friends about my mother and me, usually in hushed tones after I'd just left the room. She's a somber little thing, somebody would say, or she's so shy. She certainly hasn't Louisa's high spirits. That was my mother, Louisa. Apparently, there was a sparkle in her eye. My Uncle Teddy said this about her once, and when I asked him where the sparkle was, what part of the eye, he laughed and gave me a wink. When I asked him again, he told me to shut my trap. I didn't inherit my mother's high spirits or her sparkly eye, but she did leave me a very nice lady's suitcase. It had been a wedding gift from a wealthy, distant cousin. I never saw it until the day father came for me at St. Catherine's Orphan Asylum. He gave Mother Beatrice no notice, just showed up one afternoon in the summer of 1922 when I was 12. He arrived in a borrowed black Packard, and when he strode out to the courtyard where my friends and I were playing, he called out, Which one of you is Mary? At least five of us raised our hands. It was a Catholic orphanage after all. But I felt, as he smiled vaguely at each of us in turn, like he'd reached inside me and crushed my heart with his hand. I hadn't seen him in almost a year, but I recognized him instantly. I'd grown a bit. I think that's why he didn't know me at first. What about Adel or, or Trudy, he said. We called our girl Trudy when she was a baby, Trudy Engel. I was too thrilled to remain hurt. As soon as I stepped forward, he said, Well, there you are, and pulled me close. I felt the strange smoothness of his freshly shaved jaw during that brief moment when he pressed his face against my forehead. He used to have rough whiskers when Uncle Teddy took me to visit him up at the lumber mill. He told me to pack my clothes, he was moving me in with Aunt Kate. The laughter and taunts from some of the older girls when he reminded them of my original name were like blanks fired from a pistol. They were like the loud pop, pop, pop from a clown's dummy pistol in the circus that came to Scranton every summer 
The circus had a free night for foundlings and other unfortunates. We all screamed and clung to one another when we were little and heard the clown's gun going off the first time. And the next year and the years after, we didn't even flinch. We fought over peanuts and candy in the stands while the clown did those same old tired gags. The elephant never left its tent on foundling night. Sometimes the acrobats took the night off, too. We were left with that dumb clown and a dog act, and who cared about them? We got free bags of goodies. Similarly, who cared about those girls calling me that stupid nickname? I had a father. They didn't. He was taking me away. They were staying at the home. Well, come on, let's get your things, father said. He was carrying the lovely white suitcase that had once belonged to my very own mother. The opening of the novel The Foundling by New York Times best-selling author Anne Leary. Leary's story is inspired by Laurelton Village that was located in Union County in Pennsylvania. Anne Leary will return to the Susquehanna Valley to talk about her book early next week. She'll visit Bucknell University in Lewisburg on Tuesday, March 7th, and Lycoming College in Williamsport on March 8th. WVIA's Fiona Powell had a chance to speak by phone with Anne Leary about The Foundling. My novel, The Foundling, is about two women, Mary and Lillian. They were childhood friends. They grew up in the same orphan asylum, as they were called in those days, in Scranton, Pennsylvania. And they meet again as young adults in another kind of institution, but they're no longer roommates. Mary works for the very charismatic and brilliant superintendent doctor who heads the institution. And Lillian is an inmate being held against her will at an asylum for quote-unquote feeble-minded women of childbearing age, which was actually a eugenics asylum. And so the plot of the book really is about the conflict of Mary finding herself at this wonderful job involved in a very, very popular, the eugenics movement of the early 20th century was not a quiet, like, secret society. It was a household word. It was the law of the land and where she worked where Mary in the novel worked was a very, very highly acclaimed asylum or actually an institution. And it's based on um, a place in, in Laurelton, Pennsylvania, in Union County. It was called the Laurelton State Village for feeble-minded women of childbearing age. My grandmother worked there at age 17 as a stenographer. She was raised in an orphanage, just like the main character in the book. So there's just a lot of crossover. Um, I I, I found this out about my grandmother about 10 years ago, just in a census record that she worked at this place with this long kind of off-putting name. And I decided to research the place. And I still, you know, the book's over and I'm working on something else. But because I'm coming to the area, I'm heading over to Harrisburg to do a little bit more research because <laughs> I can't, I'm fascinated by, by Laurelton State Village. It's fascinating to hear you say that eugenics was not hidden my first instinct of of this place being in Laurelton, which is really, and you describe it in the book as middle of nowhere, it really is. <laughs> I mean, it makes Lewisburg look like a downtown metropolis. It's gorgeous, but it really is yeah. in the middle of nowhere in Western Union County. And I was wondering whether it, places like this were placed there because there was a sense of embarrassment or shame, but apparently not. Well, um, so there were these 
places all over the country. So in the there's a great actually PBS the television series American Experience did a two part series called the American Eugenics Crusade. You can stream it. I encourage anyone who doesn't know much about eugenics, which most Americans don't. We weren't taught about it in school. But it really distills what I learned over a decade of reading about um, that era into a really understandable, very fascinating program. But basically, they start out by saying just that. Everybody knew what eugenics was from farmers to politicians. It was positive eugenics was simply encouraging you know, uh, healthy, thriving families to have more children and struggling families who might not, you know, who aren't the healthiest um, to have less children. And that's what was going on. It was a philosophy started by actually Darwin's nephew, Francis Galton. He coined the term eugenics. So it started in Great Britain and spread throughout, um, you know, Europe and, and especially to the United States. But the United States is the first country that moved to what they call negative eugenics or what we call it now. And that is forced sterilization of quote unquote defective people mentally or otherwise. And it's in states where you know, courts wouldn't allow for forced sterilization. They would institutionalize these people against their will. And Pennsylvania is a state that didn't allow for forced sterilization of the feeble-minded or otherwise defective people. So they um, had asylums like the one where my grandmother worked. I just want to say Laurelton State Village, like many of the other asylums that are scattered all over the country that started out, that had these origins, went through many kind of, you know, changes. It, it became a much better place. And there's still people I've met and I've, I've spoken with who worked there. It closed in 1995 or in the 1990s anyway. And it became a, a true training school for men and women with intellectual disabilities. And the people I have spoken to who worked there loved the individuals who they took care of and who, who they felt like they were their family members. They were very sad when it closed Laurelton State Village, the institution, is beautiful. You can Google it if you've never been there, but it looks like a college campus. I mean, it's not far from Bucknell, but the first time I went to, well, I think I was at Bucknell when I was a little girl because a lot of people in my family went to Bucknell, but I went to Bucknell on one trip and then over to Laurelton State Village just to peer in over the fence. And it's a beautiful place. And so the community still, I think, has a lot of pride about the place and a lot, it employed a lot of people in the area. So I don't, I want to always make sure people understand that I'm writing about the place where my grandmother worked in 19, I think she worked there from 1929 to about 1932, where she met her husband who went to Bucknell. And that's when she, you know, was done working there. You know, I, it's shocking. But then on the other hand, so many women were labeled. Yes. But what I found out in my research about how women were so uh, stigmatized. One thing I learned in this research is the Roaring Twenties, this decade I always kind of loved because I always thought of Zelda Fitzgerald and all the wonderful, fun-loving Dorothy Parker types. They were the rich people, but the regular folk in the 1920s, especially poor women, couldn't engage in the same behaviors. A rich woman could have lovers, she could be gay, she could drink too much and do drugs, and she might be considered, you know, wonderfully eccentric, but a, a woman who's poor or like my grandmother had no family and engaged in those behaviors, she would have been considered a menace to society. Uh, eugenics was very much based on this very convoluted 
theory that criminality and feeble-mindedness is what they called it then, but um, like low intelligence were, were connected. Basically, if you were a criminal by like kind of by definition, that meant there was something defective about your brain. Well, women, most sexual behavior, again, outside of marriage, was considered criminal. So uh, a lot of women ended up at Laurelton State Village. You know, they might have had a husband who was bored with them. They might have been a prostitute, but um, they might have been a 14-year-old girl who said her uncle touched her and he said something's wrong with her. They didn't need a doctor or a judge to send them. It was a, a husband, a, you know, a man who was part of their family. Women were very much children in the early 20th century in the eyes of the law, no matter what the woman's age. So I, all of this was really fascinating. And But this whole institution, Laurelton State Village, was founded to specifically house Again, women of childbearing age, it wasn't a place to train them. It wasn't. And, and what I learned was, again, at the time when my grandmother was there, a very small percentage of the women had what we would today call intellectual uh, disabilities. A lot of them were what they called morally defective women. They you know, might have been promiscuous. Again, um, there was a very funny brochure I read written at the time, and it listed the traits of feeble-minded women, like to help people, like social workers, to identify them in the community. They included obstinacy, the use of vulgar language, drinking alcohol, smoking cigarettes, and, quote, unquote, actively seeking sex. I read these to my husband. He said, so basically you, when I first met you, because <laughs> like, we met in college, every college, you know, it was basically every, what we now consider normal behavior of people in their <laughs> college years was considered a sign of a very defective and depraved mind. And it was really scary reading that, thinking of myself at that age. So that was in my mind constantly as I was doing my research, uh, thinking about my grandmother, thinking about the many women who unfortunately were inmates, as they were called, at, at Laurelton State Village. And it was a work farm. They, they worked very hard. It was lots of field work. It was a thriving farm that fed not just the people, the women in the institution, but, you know, sold their dairy milk. It, it was a lot. And the women were also, some of the women were farmed out to work as servants in Lewisburg for prominent families who were friends of the superintendent, and their wages went back to the asylum. So it was quite a, a lot to learn about the place that employed my grandmother, which she never spoke of afterwards. You've managed to craft from this tragedy, this tragic situation, a great story. A great story that has been described as a beach read. Right. So yeah, I really loved the great reaction I have received from reviewers who said, you know, it should be grim, but it's kind of fun and it's definitely suspenseful towards the end. But, oh, yeah, I have to, I can't, you know, I always want humor and there always is humor in anything. And I was writing about young people in the 1920s. So I, I had to show at least the people who work there having fun, as I imagine my grandmother and her friends did. And so, yeah, thank you, though, for saying that, because I forget, I think sometimes when I'm talking about the book, people think, oh, that sounds really dark, and I can't with that. But no, I think I, I tried to make it, and, I, and a lot of the fun things I put in there, most of what I put in there were based on things I actually found out about some goings on in the area. So I tried to make it not too grim. <laughs> it does sound like it's, it's really interesting, because it's about friendship. And it's about right. you work for somebody. The 18-year-old Mary Engel admires right. her employer 
the brilliant genteel Dr. Agnes Vogel. So I guess she doesn't really realize what's going on at first. Well, you know, she does and she doesn't. Again, there was no, it wasn't a secret what the place was, but she didn't understand. So, you know, most people thought this was a wonderful thing. It was going to make our country great. You know, it was going to help keep criminals. It was basically the idea was to prevent future crimes by preventing the birth of future criminals. That's like the eugenics kind of condensed. It was very, the eugenics movement in the United States was very much a reaction to the wave of immigration after World War One. And these were immigrants from the wrong parts of Europe. They were from Eastern and Southern Europe, unlike the earlier immigrants. And they were from other parts of the world, Asian countries and Africa. And it, it really, really upset, you know, it was very much, while I was researching this in the 2020s, the 1920s headlines were very much, very similar to what a lot of people were worried about, are now worried about now. Freaking out about immigration, a lot of xenophobia, a lot of fear of others who aren't like us. And so um, Mary, in the book, wouldn't have questioned her boss because her boss gave lectures in packed halls all through the state of Pennsylvania. And I read some of the talks that the real doctor did. Now, the real woman that my grandmother worked for, again, is from the area. Her name was Dr. Mary Wool. And the character of Dr. Bogle in my novel is certainly not based on the real doctor. I don't want anyone, because I have a feeling she still has relatives there. The real doctor, Mary Wolfe, her grandfather, I believe, founded Bucknell. And Mary Wolfe was one of the first women who attended there as an undergraduate. And then she went to University of Michigan and got a medical degree in like 1899. She was fascinating. That's, I just was completely smitten with the very real character. And... I wanted the reader to feel the same way about Dr. Bogle, the way I had, you know, Mary meet her and be kind of enamored with her. She was so modern. She was doing things no women were doing at the time, and she would have been a wonderful mother figure for Mary who had no mother. So one of the things of the book is very much female friendships, but also motherhood or lack of, you know, what it's like to not have a mother and the need for uh, a mother, even when you're not even a little girl anymore, there's a hole, you know, in the main character's psyche. And the doctor in the book uses that to her advantage. But then she, they, they're at a, at a talk w- with the governor's wife in attendance. You know, it's very much not, again, it was not a secret society or eugenics was the law of the land. The Immigration Act of 1924 was very much a eugenics law. And it, it kind of is the law that put limits on the amount of immigrants who could come from certain countries. So Mary in the book and my grandmother as well wouldn't have ever thought to question, you know, this very highly educated woman who all the people in power in the Commonwealth kind of revered and, and hosted her at their get togethers as she did they. But, you know, it was the prohibition era. And I did add some of the stuff you know, that I thought might go on in the hospital during Prohibition. And I I did a lot of reading of newspaper archives of that time. And there were just some things I picked up. There was one little item about all these barrels of great Canadian whiskey that were being sent to Laurelton State Village. And most people who have studied Prohibition know you could only get alcohol legally from doctors or it was one of the few ways but this journalist was wondering why did why does this hospital that's not a surgical hospital and has this very healthy population of women of childbearing age you know 14 to 45 basically or 12 to 45 why do they have so much whiskey and I don't know why maybe they needed it but in my book 
there's a reason why. And so there's a lot of stuff about the the time that really isn't even about eugenics, but it's more about the corruption that, that goes on at a time where there's the one per, really one percenters and, and the rest of the people. And it's a book about friendship, clearly. It's a book about Mary and Lillian and friendship. Yeah. Mary, you know, I like kind of an unreliable narrator. And Mary is, you know, I won't give a spoiler, but it turns out that Mary has a secret and it involves Lillian and her childhood and involves some childhood trauma of Mary's that she has found a way to blame or somehow blame Lillian for. And she, she also convinces herself that Lillian is better off where she is now Lillian is there, and this isn't really a spoiler, but Lillian is there because she's a white woman who was a jazz singer and fell in love with a horn player who happened to be black, and she had his child, and that was illegal to have a child out of wedlock and certainly a mixed-race child. The child was immediately taken away, and she was sent at age 20 to Laurelton State Village, where she would be released when she was too old to have any more children, and she was separated from her child. So her friend just wants her help to get out, and Mary... But some scary things happened to Lillian before she arrived at the asylum, and Mary thinks she might be safer there. She actually thinks back on Lillian's early years and decides maybe she does have something wrong with her mind because she makes these impulsive decisions. So there's a lot of that. And again, I was very much informed by what was going on in my own family, in our society, where people were blaming others or justifying behavior or attitudes in ways that might not have been the most ethical. But I'm, I'm, I'm very excited to come to Lewisburg and to Lycoming College because I didn't get to do, I did a, a book event in Harrisburg, which I, which was fabulous when my book first came out, but I've always wanted to come. I've met a, online a number of people, like I said, who were part of the Laurelton community when it became a better place. And then there's this wonderful historian in the area named Emily Jensma, and she has, has this website called the LaurelTonHistoryProject.com, and people might want to check that out. But I, I've met some of these people, but I'm, I'm hoping they'll come, and I'm, I'm just looking forward to meeting people who are curious about the place. Many people are. There's a couple of Facebook groups devoted to Laurelton State Village, and it is very much a part of the history of that part of Union County, which people take a lot of pride in. It's a beautiful, like I said, it's a very beautiful, uh, it was a very beautiful campus. The idea was for it to not look like one of those scary kind of Victorian Gothic asylums that was built on what they called the cottage plan. It It looked beautiful. You know, so I think in later years after the reforms that took place in in all aspects of mental health and individuals who have disabilities, it became a place where people were proud to work and loved their work and loved the individuals that they cared for. Anne Leary, New York Times bestselling author, speaking with WVIA's Fiona Powell about her novel based on the real Laurelton Village in Union County. Anne Leary will visit both Bucknell University and Lycoming College on March 7th and 8th to talk about her book, The Foundling. Bucknell will host Leary on Tuesday, March 7th at 7 p.m. in Bucknell Hall, and Lycoming will host her on Wednesday, March 8th at 7 in the Trogner Presentation Room in the Krapp Gateway Center. These events are free and open to the public. Again, it's Anne Leary, 
L-E-A-R-Y, speaking about her novel, The Foundling, based on the real historical Laurelton Village in Union County, visiting Bucknell University in Lewisburg and Lycoming College in Williamsport early next week. On March 7th, she will appear at Bucknell Hall at 7 o'clock on the campus in Lewisburg, and Lycoming will host her the next evening, Wednesday, March 8th at 7 in the Kraft Gateway Center. The events are free and open to the public, and for more information, bucknell.edu, bucknell.edu, and lycoming.edu, L-Y-C-O-M-I-N-G, lycoming.edu, and then about the writer herself, annleary.com, annleary.com.